our conversation with Timothy Knight. Musician and artist. And the owner of the infamous Guitar Castle. Come, let's take a trip with Tim. It's really astonishing the things that you find in your own backyard if you're just willing to look for them. I know I've probably told this story before, but my wife and I moved to Salem a few years ago uh, from Portland. We'd lived in Portland for quite some time. And, uh, well, we needed something a little thriftier for our lifestyle. Let's just say that. And uh, Salem provided in that way, absolutely. But uh, the comment we would get over and over again from all of our friends was, there's nothing there. Why are you going? What are you doing? And, you know, for a little while, I kind of let that hype get to me. But as time went on, Salem's no different than any other city. Really, what they were worried about is their friends leaving to go to another place. Everyone we knew lived in Portland, and all these people are saying, stay, stay, stay. It wasn't because of any deficiency our new home had. It was that our friends didn't want to lose us. Which is fine, I understand that, but, you know, our lives, they diverge and go different paths, and regardless, uh, we found something that we really enjoy here. Namely, we found each other. But then there was this city, this really peculiar, odd, unusual place that is not Eugene, it's not Portland, it's not really a small town, it's not really rural, but it's none of the urban things that make cities cities. It's hard to explain. But as I searched this town further, trying to find people, trying to find places, trying to understand what it's about and kind of learn about its history, you inevitably stumble across people that are, well, fascinating is probably the easiest way of putting it. Case in point, Timothy Knight, who uh, is the owner and operator of uh, Guitar Castle here in Salem, and uh, among many other things, uh, is close friends with uh, John and Xene of Band X, uh, and also sells guitars to, oh gosh, the guys in Nirvana, uh, Almond Brothers, uh, guys in R.E.M., Sonic Youth, you name it. Uh, it Guitar Castle has kind of become fairly well-known in music circles as a place where you can get a very nice guitar from a gentleman who absolutely understands how much they're worth. (laughs) But that's not all, because Tim's had some amazing adventures in his life as well, uh, performing in bands himself, uh, traveling around, but most notably was one of the last people to perform with John Fahey as John Fahey, well, expired here in Salem. 
we get to some, but not all of these stories. Tim's, uh, well, he's a fun guy to talk to, but uh, much like me, he's all over the place. And uh, I do my best to try to kind of extract as much as I can out of him, but I can already tell that uh, I'm going to want to sit down with him again because there is more to a character like this than you can get from just one conversation. I should advise up front, uh, this was recorded largely in public. Uh, Tim is a man on the move, and when he asked me to meet him at Guitar Castle, I thought we were going to set up in the shop. But uh, he wanted lunch, and so we go and we get lunch, and then we walk around, and then we return to the Guitar Castle where we conclude the interview. Uh, So the sound quality varies throughout the conversation. I've done my best to kind of edit things together in a way that... uh, doesn't include uh, forkfuls of uh, the special, uh, but uh, this is uh, Timothy Knight uh, as he is, and uh, the kind of gentleman that he uh, can't help but be, and uh, that's exactly the person I got to know during our conversation. I wouldn't have found Tim if I hadn't kept my eyes open about this city. If I hadn't looked out and said, well, you know, it is not where I'm from, but what is here? WTBC Radio in beautiful anywhere, anywhere. This conversation was recorded on December 18th, 2017, out and about in Salem, Oregon, and in the Guitar Castle. I don't know about bands, kind of history music. Well, I, I was also kind of curious about um, just the guitar store a little bit because, okay. like, I, um, you know, I again, I didn't grow up in Salem, so I don't know enough about like when it started and you know, like when it came back. I was like, oh, hey, there's a new guitar store, and everybody's like, not even close to new. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, okay, so maybe there's just a little background that I don't have. <laughs> the simple background is uh, after several years of working. Well, I originally opened Branch Records with Kit in 82, but uh, two guys making 50 cents a day wasn't really cutting it for me, so <laughs> I went back to work, Got it. which was easy for me to do. And then after about five years, I decided what I really want to do is be in business, because I enjoyed my time at Branch Records, but I wanted uh, to be my own. So I wanted, I researched guitars since by listening to all the rock and roll and reading all the magazines of who plays what and got to understand it pretty clearly. So I decided to open a used guitar store in 1988. I got my first building. And uh, I had a thought of it being a mom-pop type store. Got it. You know, just bring your kids in, get them lessons, sell them a used guitar, have it be kind of like a local family kind of centric sure. thing, you know? Sure, because I didn't say them. I thought that would fit the, the thing. Yeah. And uh, it did not take long for that to take a little shift because I kept meeting. Uh, uh, because I owned a guitar store, I went to a lot of shows and I met uh, a lot of people that 
came in and started buying stuff. The Almond Brothers, which was kind of strange, the baseball wow. Alan Woody became a really good friend of mine. And uh, X scene of X was the very first kind of star to come in my store. And it seemed like you know a lot about guitars as instruments, like what they can do, what they don't do, and so it seems like those relate. Like people seem to get that and want to come in. Well, that was established after the first couple of years because a lot of people in Salem were selling me guitars that they'd had since the 50s and 60s. Oh. And uh, I didn't say no to any of that. And so it rapidly became a place you could get a great deal on a fabulous guitar. And it was nonstop. For several years, people would be bringing me in 60s Gibsons, old Martins, great stuff. So that if a Alan Whittier Xene or uh, Steve Ray Vaughan or somebody came in, they had a lot of choices. Yeah. And uh, so I fell into that path. I thought uh, Salem's Vintage Guitar Store had a good ring to it. So that's Guitar Castle, Salem's Vintage Guitar Store. I moved from Liberty Street to Court Street uh, next to what is now the kitchen. Mm -hmm. I was there for 10 years, the entire uh, 90s, and the music scene in Salem was phenomenal. Uh, Monkey Presents was renting the um, Salem Armory, bringing yeah. in thousands every month a couple of top end groups. Uh, Big rock shows. They played there. Yeah. yeah, Nirvana, Nirvana Tool, uh, uh, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Chili Peppers. I, I even saw Firehose there once. Uh, you know, you name it, they played there. Yeah. You know, young, and all these people would would uh, find out they're looking for a, a guitar store. There's a vintage guitar store that's something they come to. So right. it was really quite interesting how. It did not take too long for it to for me to have some incredible Rickenbacker guitars, which right. are impossible to find today. <laughs> Tellies, you know, just I was selling them for twice what I paid for them, and today they're worth ten times that much. Right. But it still was enabled me to be to run this vintage guitar store, and the mod pod thing sort of went away. I did lessons for a long time, which kind of made it the family. But right. then I just got too busy to do that. And Something's got to drop. Uh, business was really good. And uh, so, yeah, this is kind of something that I think contextually is very <clears throat> interesting to talk about because in the 90s, my memory of Oregon was like, you know, we were still kind of like learning what cool things were, you know? Like, I felt like, you know, there wasn't a lot of like, you know, there were still people kind of like shutting down businesses because it was too loud or too raucous, you know, like it kind of felt like to me the 90s was our version of punk rock because we were still trying to not have our shows get shut down and not have like our venues go away. <laughs> in Eugene? Well, yeah, yeah in Eugene and, and other places I visited. So I'm just kind of curious contextually, sure. what was the scene like in Salem at the time? Well, it was similar. We The same bands that played Eugene played Salem. But if you had a bar and it was big enough, we had no problems. Like John Henry's and Eugene, was, we had the West Side Station, which at that time was quite hip. Um, and, you know, if you're in there, there's no shutting down because that's what you do inside a, a building like that. Mm -hmm. Now, 
as far as rehearsing in houses, that's where the problems came because the uh, music can be very loud and, and to rehearse it, you can't rehearse it soft and then go play loud. Right. So <laughs> that's where I saw problems, people getting in trouble with someone calling the cops. The Their cops neighbors get or something. called twice, they shut you down. Right. First time they come and say, hey, you guys got to turn it down, which was nice, gave yeah. you a warning. But in the and there were plenty of punk rock groups in Salem as well as uh, 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 a whole lot of uh, classic rockers and that kind of stuff. But I don't think it was buildings here in Salem that like what started this question. More just the rehearsal spaces. Got we it. didn't have good buildings that you could lease out. I visited Tacoma where I have a very good friend. And they all use buildings, they, they, and then they have the doors locked so they sure. it's safe. And it was just not an issue because the buildings were huge. Yeah. So well, you we run didn't into have that, that in Salem. We run into that now in Portland too, where they have these huge places that are basically sectioned off, where you rent a little room. And like, at least you know, when I was growing up in Eugene, we didn't have anything. Like, you know, it was basically someone's house or yeah, someone's a house. garage. Yeah. And uh, and I felt like. Even though, you know, punk rock had already happened, some of the 90s felt like we were rehashing these, like, late 70s arguments with the authorities and parents. <laughs> but, but you're right that, that the punk rock might have started in the late 70s, but by the 90s it was the music to go see. Yes. The Ramones played Portland tons of times. It was great to see them. The Clash. Yeah. Uh, the Sex Pistols played in uh, Portland. But that was later. That was their reunion tour. Sure. And, but uh, the cute thing about Salem, in my mind, was that you know it was this kind of like more authentic taste of Oregon. Eugene has a little bit of the hippie, cool culture going for it. Really? And Portland, Henry Vestine and yeah, well, because the Grateful Dead played there all the time, and you get that whole culture building it up. And then in Portland, you have a very urban kind of environment. Salem to me felt like it still had a, an Oregon taste to it, where it was like the the rural hit hillbilly, but also smoked pot and was going to rock shows and things like that. <laughs> sure. Uh, with the help of the Armory and the LB Day Theater, I mean they had great acts play Salem, great, and that enriches everything. Mm -hmm. uh, the local band scene. I was in a group called The Digs. We played all over Portland, Gene, Salem. And uh, it was just you'd go and play. You didn't have to worry about anything going on there at the clubs. Yeah. But there were lots of bands. Uh, Julie Eaton here in Salem was trying to uh, kind of get an idea on the bands. But you got to go back to the late 50s. We actually, the first rock and roll band in Salem was called the Mad Flats. Really? Okay. Gary, Gary Knob. And, and clear into the 60s, there were some great groups when I was in high school. But nobody knows them because they didn't, you know. And these were mostly garage bands that were just local and didn't, didn't press records, unfortunately. A lot of pretty good singers. And, and uh, it, they, did, they went on to make records when they left Salem. Got it. Many of them moved to Portland. The wonderful Brian Berg, great, great rock and roll here from Salem. Uh, several others, Cal Tanner, who I played with, oh, okay. moved to 
Portland and, and was successful up there. Uh, they're not alive anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, tons of young people moved to Portland in the 90s, and their rock groups were, were successful. Um, John Moen, of the, uh, I think he was in the Decemberance and, and uh, Maroon. Tons of Salem people. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that seems to be a trend too. Where like, the more people I talk to, all these bands that I thought were Portland bands, they're actually Salem bands. <laughs> Typhoon these days, right? Uh, I was going back quite a few years with uh, John Mullen and uh, oh, uh, what's his? Come on, Wilson, Jeremy Wilson. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a great foundation for his lifestyle in Portland and he was from Silverton like you know and he was in uh, Pilot and Dharma Bums sure. and a few other groups uh, so was John Moen and all those guys but yet you know um, it's a reoccurring theme grow up in Salem without a Salem right you know? yeah, yeah, yeah and some successful bands so uh, let's talk about some of the groups that you played with because you I mean uh some of the people you've played with, John Fahey, and you've had original groups as well. Um, you've joined bands and have been like the songwriter. Like, where, what was your first group that you did? The first professional group. I'm not going to go back to little uh, high school and early days. We all had an embarrassing high school band. It's okay. Yeah, um, <laughs> first professional band was The Digs. The Digs. It started in my store in the late 80s. Phil Washington was a great singer. Uh, Johnny Dagger was a drummer. And then Michael, Mike Kent, who later left the digs and joined, became Everclear's, uh, Everclear's uh, sound man. And they put him through college. He, he used to work for me for Corn Dogs and Pop. <laughs> Mike Kent is one of those people that left Salem and got hugely successful. Right. That's so uh, funny too, because like Nick Close. Mm, I know that name. Nick is Kit Close's cousin, and he was the sound man for the Dharma Bums when they were just a local band. And uh, I think the next band he worked with was Nirvana, mm. and then Sonic Youth. Right. And then I've seen him on stage with Lucinda Williams. <laughs> he, he, he had to wear a suit in that one. Beautiful. He's black keys. He's made it. Huge. Right. Quiet man would not like the uh, flag. Da 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 da. da. Right. Nick Close is big time. Cool. He keeps it real quiet. Yeah. Thanks for the t shirts, Nick. (laughs) I went and you could walk right up to the stage and put your elbows on stage in front of Jim Morrison at that point. (laughs) Six months later, there was no way you could get that close to Jim Morrison. Right, right. That's funny. Yeah, my fire. No, you're good. That's why I'm here. I'm, I'm trying to imagine too, like um, you know, um, an era where you know, uh, you know, it's not a big deal to have seen like the Doors and the Rolling Stones and played with Moby Grape, and that it happened here in town where it seems like so little of that stuff happens. <laughs> well. Of course, you get the level of Rolling Stones, you're going to go to Portland. They're right there. I saw them in Seattle, but... 
X and Sonic Youth, they were along with the Beastie Boys and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, Sonic, Sonic Youth had bought the touch me for 20 years. Yeah, wasn't uh, Lee in your store not too long ago? They and I went to New York and played this private club thing and uh, Lee Ronaldo was one of the acts and me and John and the No Neck Blues Band oh yeah it was their club mm-hmm. and it was uh, uh, in Harlem and my brother lived in Manhattan and even he couldn't find the address <laughs> well, that's funny <laughs> it was only a short walk to the river so we knew it had to be right in here and we just stopped and John's going <laughs> before cell phones or we didn't have them right I said well, here's a little button on a brick wall I push the button door flies open there you guys are come on in <laughs> up a stair there wasn't a door that you could see it was all brick no that's hilarious but I found a little push button Went up there, the wine fest, hot smoking fiasco, not fiasco, an art show, and a gig. Lauren Manson came, this famous noise musician was there, leaving Aldo. That's fantastic. So uh, the Diggs was the first group, first professional group I was in. I was in plenty that didn't make records. Right. Just played around and... So you probably started playing when you were in high school, but like through to the 80s was like a good several years of like, you know, just playing and having fun, like not doing it. I took it. the 70s off. Really? Okay. Because I didn't really know too much about, I had to learn how to play the instruments I loved were bass and guitar mm-hmm. and then keyboards. Because you were more painting for... No. No? No? I, I don't know, after college, I, I didn't want to just, and I had a guitar always and messed around in the 70s, but I was trying to get a life, a job, a career. Sure. Went to school with the thought of being a principal. What did you do in school? I took art, music, ballet, things that I loved. Okay. I did really good in things that I loved, and I just got by on some months and just enough to kind of graduate. I was going to get a teaching certificate. Oh, okay, cool. So um, that was like something where, you know, when you were younger, you're like, oh, whatever. But now I want to focus on like getting this cert- certificate. What what tipped you back towards music? I worked with school district for 15 years, and then I couldn't really get any farther. I was like instructional aid three, you know, in other words, right under a student teacher. And uh, I just moved to Portland and lived there for the rest of the 70s and didn't pursue anything like a career. I did work for the Portland School District and uh, I had, oh, I drove a truck for Volunteers for America and I got the best antique stuff because it was a dollar a day for the people in the back of the truck, a dollar an hour for the driver. I would participate in the back of the truck, so when something cool came in, like a box of records, I put it in the cab. That's <laughs> the only one in the cab. Two guys in the back of the truck that were homeless. Back then, that didn't really mean you didn't have a home. Right. You didn't have any money. 
and they and I got this blue velvet couch and so I took it right to my house. I lived a couple blocks from the volunteers in the market. The theory was a dollar a day plus anything you wanted. Right. The guys in the back, they could change your clothes in the back of the truck. Or, cool. And I was only in my 20s, so it was going in my or anything. Yeah, it's funny how afterwards we always try to like apply some sort of like logic or reason going like oh you were clearly doing this thing and leading this path in your life and a lot of times it's more kind of like well I did this thing for a while and I tried this and I tried that and yeah if you want it you can have it but you gotta learn to reach out there and grab it if you are looking for professional photography and contemporary style and glamour then J. Jean Portraits is your destination Based right here in Salem, Oregon, just like this podcast, J. Jean Portraits can offer the right kind of photos for the project that you have in mind. To help wet the whistle of people interested in J. Jean Portraits, we are holding a contest for the person or artist who would like to do a little photo shoot on us. Please send an email to austinrich at gmail.com and explain why you should have your band, art project, or whatever photographed in a short paragraph. And the most interesting entry will receive a full photo shoot package courtesy of J. Jean Portraits. You do not want to miss out on this opportunity to get professional quality photography for free. So please enter to win a free photography package with J. Jean Portraits. That's jjeanportraits.com, a professional look tailored specifically for you. So I guess uh, a couple more questions I have is, um, you know, you're, you're playing music and whatnot. How did you meet Fahey and start playing with him? Because that seems like someone who... Uh, Good question. Yeah. John Fahey was from Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is D.C., Okay. Area. And he came out to LA when he was kind of hugely famous. Right. And uh, went to, well, he went to school in Berkeley and got two different degrees. And his best albums were made when he was in college at Berkeley Yellow Princess and Requiem for Mississippi John Hurt. Mm-hmm. Then he moved to LA. We met then his wife, you know. So from there, he decided he had to stop drinking. Mm. It was affecting his career, and they've been everywhere. And they liked Portland, but they, he thought if they moved to Salem, she could always have a job because it's a capital city. Got it. So they bought a house here in the early '80s. And so, if you get this DVD, The Saga of Blind Joe Death, that whole story's in there. Okay. And the wonderful man, James, that made the film, a professor in Canada, back, back east Canada, and his students helped create the animation in this film. It's really good, Austin, you would love it. And you'll find it somewhere. Sure. 
uh, not at a small bookstore or something <laughs> like that, but online somewhere. His whole story's in there. Nice. So, uh, I knew who he was. I had just on the record store. So the record, they looked interesting. I played some of it. Then when he moved here, he was still kind of touring and stuff, and so I'd only see him occasionally on the streets or something. Right, right, between gigs or between whatever he's working on. But one day, now, Sonic Youth, I told you, had bought guitars from me since the beginning. Right. Jazzmasters, Jaguars, funky, weird guitars. And, and they were like early customers, same with Vaccine, right? Yeah, 20 years of Sonic Youth. Bay, he was a one of their idols, and he went back east and did a tour with uh, either Thurston Moore or Dang. Uh, some members of Sonic Youth. I sure. can't remember what it was. Yeah. He called him Sonic Old. <laughs> That's funny. But they liked him a lot, and they worked together. And so. Without me knowing it, he was talking to Thurston about. He always talks in the falsetto voice. Oh, we put together a noise band. <laughs> Thurston, this is what John said later, uh, told him, "Why don't you go into the guitar store and talk to him?" Oh. Or he would sometimes call me that guy. That guy. Yeah. <laughs> and you would see me. Oh, there's that guy. <laughs> What do you got? <laughs> right, right. And so John came in to my store on Court Street, by the kitchen now, right. and said, I want to. He, he, he told me he was looking for a DAC tape. Okay. A digital audio tape from the early days, really small. Sure. I said, Well, I don't sell those, but you go out to Cascade Sound, they do. And he goes, I don't like those guys. <laughs> so, okay, well, I can help you get a DAT tape. He said, I don't really want a DAT tape. I, I was just wondering, but that's just how he is. Sure. Just, just something to get in the door. Right, he needs a conversation starter. I was wondering if you might be able to help me put a noise project together. Really? You know? I'd be happy to do that. I have this one friend that's like a pedal sex expert. This was in the 80s. This, no, it couldn't have been. No, this was in the late 90s. Mm. 96, 7, 8, until he died in 2001. So, so, he, so really late in his... Yeah, and so he came in, and then I called Rob, this other guy, and told him what I had in mind. He said, Sure, let's get together. So we went into his basement where he had a lot of pedals, uh, before foot pedals and stuff. But, and I play keyboard, I play guitar, and with, with that I have a table of toys I could play, noise toys. Yeah. I already understood what he wanted. I understood Sonic Youth's music really well. Right. I didn't know how to play any of them or anything. But you were the right age for kind of like understanding like post-punk and no wave and, and understanding what it was about. I've seen almost everybody. I never saw Kraft I've seen Bowie, Bowie, Bowie three times. Sonic Youth, 
Yeah. Too many times. So always. <laughs> as, but, as someone who only saw them once, I feel like you could not have seen them too many times. But <laughs> I've seen Mother Hoople. Most um, people don't know what that would be like. I'm jealous of Mother Hoople. I would love to have seen that. And, uh, <laughs> uh, let's see, somebody really cool over there. Bill was the bass player. Bill was his name. Got a really good so nice. Oh, I'm a nice guy. Thin Lizzy. Oh, okay. That kind of makes sense, though. They had a little bit of a similar sensibility. Um, that was at the Paramount Theater in Portland. Oh, that's awesome. And, and, and might have been five or six dollars. I'll go back to the paving. Within a week, I organized with just three guys, me, John Faye. We sat down and started jamming, and then we jammed again. We jammed again. Never once were we considered, all right, now we got the band. Right. Well, where can we play? Well, we played the Oregon Capitol Inn where he lived. It's no longer here. Right. They tore it down because there's a crack center and a prostitution center. And... So anyway, then we got, we played Eugene and Sam Bon's Garage a couple times. Oh, yeah. We played the Satyricon in Portland. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, EJ's were oh, yes. both uh, Elliot Smith and uh, uh, Peter Krebs came to watch us and sat oh, yeah. down in front. Yeah, I went to the last bit of EJ's shows because yeah. I moved to Portland basically for the last year of EJ's. And uh, so, like, as I would be sitting there watching Dead Moon play, all these people would be like, oh, but back in the day, oh, and they would like reminisce. <laughs> Dead Moon were around forever. Yeah. Brad just passed. Yeah. I've been uh, hoping to do a little tribute to him on the air soon because, uh, I mean, like, I saw him a bunch when I lived in Portland, but it was one of those things where, again, like, I thought they would be around forever. The music millennium, just the day I was there, the day he died. You know music millennium up on Yeah, yeah. Uh, Burnside. And, uh... There was a lady painting the windows that day. Oh, okay. I doubt it's still up, but... It took me just a glance to know what she was doing. <laughs> and I walked in, and Terry Courier was coming in the back door when I walked in. He's a friend of mine. He owns the place. He's the guy that... Of, uh, keep Portland weird. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very Somebody was painting that in the window of Music Millennium. Oh, nice. Which is a great big picture of Fred. You can see it's yeah, yeah. in his eyes. Huge window. People are, uh, I mean, it's really kind of nice to see people coming together, too, because I, I hate to have tragedy be the thing that does it, but I mean, Sometimes, people love Fred. <laughs> well, they were the real deal. I mean, they were big in Europe, but yes. you could go see them in Portland with nine people. And you could talk to them after the show here, you know? Like they owned a music store, for so, a guitar store. Yeah, for I went years. into Tombstone a couple times, too. Well, uh, so um, you were playing with Fahey around for a while. Uh, did that lead to, because I mean, obviously he passes and, you know, eventually and you're not able to do that. Did that lead to other projects afterwards? Or I can tell you what happened. He, he came into the store. And he drove himself, 
And he said, I think I have arthritis in my neck. Mm. So I'm going to go to the hospital. So I was his mentor. I was taking, I never took care of John Fahey. I did a lot of things. I booked a lot of Japanese tours and things like that for him. And he just wanted to let me know that he was going in because he, and he never came out of that hospital. They opened him up and all six arteries were clogged. Wow. And they couldn't really do much about it. Maybe if they'd only gone part way in and done, I mean, I think that I'm not a doctor. Right. Well, and he didn't have a lot of money in those days either. Well, sure he did. Oh, okay. He didn't have a bank account is what he didn't have. Oh, he I see. He needed money. Mitch was his, Manny was his uh, manager in the huge period of his life. He passed away and his son took over the business. His name's uh, Mitch. And all the money for, uh, for um, royalties went to that fund. And there's plenty of it in there. If John needed a new guitar, he had to call Mitch. Yeah, $1,700. Oh, I want it. I don't care. I don't want money. But, you know. Same with the car. When I found a gal had this nice little Honda for sale, he was driving a Ford with the front end beat up just because the cops gave it to him. He had a lot of friends that were cops. Sure. And I, I heard him call Mitch again. Yeah, I'm going to buy this Honda. I need 1700 bucks. It was the same amount all the time. And he would argue with them, and then he would get the check sent Got to Guitar Castle. It's okay. But he didn't want a, a bank account and taxes and all that stuff. He left home because his wife went, I don't, this is, he, he just left home. He yeah. loved his wife. Uh, I know that for a fact. And she knows it too. Another thing. Good. So, um, then at the hospital, Mel, Mel broke down. I just seen Right. So we get there. There's five of us. This is Eden Davis, who's a singer, and me and Tina, and Melody's friend. I can't remember his name. And the doctor comes in and says, Well, Who's in charge? And across the table from John's dead body, Melody. And she just weeping, I can't do it, I can't do it. Yeah. Of course she couldn't. Who could? Exactly. And the doctor says to you, you fly up and something to the machine. And I said, because I just learned this months ago. Is it reversible? So I'm the guy that said to the doctor, you can take the blood out of Elijah down. Wow. That was tough. Yeah. I can only imagine. So, and there's a painting in my basement I'll show you that in this film, so I don't want to get of that scene. Okay. I had to do it. Wow. And then the phone started ringing because it was uh, this one guy he, from back east that he was making a record with. How's John doing? Mm. Wow. John just died. What? And then my phone at the Guitar Castle, I went back there to weep. 
my phone rang all day long from people all over the world. Yeah. Everybody. Uh, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Uh, because everybody knew that that was his headquarters in a way. Right. That, that for making records. Because um, he had to have an address for royalty checks, for gigging purposes. And that was, I was sort of like the guy. And then we had the funeral where Leo Kaki did the eulogy. One little fellow next to me passed out and crying on the floor. I had to pick him up. It was just, just horrible. Sure. Uh, and then I put on this, the memorial service at Willamette University with the help of Tina and my wife because uh, nobody else would have done it. Interesting. And people from all over the world came. Yeah. Uh, you know who George Winston is? Yeah, yeah, the musician. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like December and all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He comes up to me, and I would assume George Winston, a tall guy in a suit with, you know, dapper and everything. This funky little hippie, bald-headed guy comes up and says, Hi, I'm George Winston. I said, oh, hi. That's what it's to me. He says, I thank you for indicating on the invites, no guitars. That was brilliant, because you're not going to play guitar in front of right. the That would be a little awkward. I mean, he says, but it brought me a little harmonica. Can I, see, I had an open mic. Can I blow a little? I said, yes, George. He got up there and did a poor boy blues on a harmonica. It was just incredible. I bet it brought some tears. M. Ward was up in the balcony. Wow. Peter Lang, who's another fabulous finger-style guitar that got a start with John Fahey. Yeah. Um, Lots and lots of people. Sonic Youth were in Japan and couldn't make it, so they sent this wonderful uh, letter, which I uh, made a blow up and had at the desk. I had a lot of his records and guitars and stuff. I was giving stuff out left and right to people that came. Uh, one guy came from as far as uh, Sydney, Australia. And Chris is his name, and he was a huge fan. New had played with him. So, and then that was the end of that. Yeah. Well, and I think, especially in those days, a lot of people had kind of forgotten about Fahey. And so, like... He had 41 albums. Yeah, yeah. So, somebody in every collection had something. Exactly. 41 exactly. albums. Yeah, well, and he was very varied in terms of that style and that stuff. That didn't count the CDs. Right. Just albums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and very varied. Mm-hmm. Uh, Made music here in Salem, actually, too, you know, so... Yeah. And then, on his 60th birthday, I played uh, keyboards and, and toys, and he played guitar, and the old people up front left, oh, and the young course. people in the back took over, and he said, Gee, Tim, this is the first time I've had fun on my birthday! <laughs> and he was 60, it was his last birthday he ever had. He was 60 years old, and he died a week before his 61st birthday to the day. That's interesting. And on the way home, he said, okay, we got paid good, and he, he was in a hotel. I stayed with my friend Rick, who was a guitar store. So we got together to come home, and we said, let's stop in Olympia. We could get lunch, shop for records, and gas up. And so we stopped in Olympia and got some records, and we had a really wonderful lunch and got all excited and hit the freeway and pretty soon I ran out of gas. 
<laughs> it was pouring down rain. I had a black leather jacket, I had a bike jacket, a sports jacket. And so I put gas on it and stood out in the rain. No time at all with car pumps on there. What's up, you need some gas? Uh, and he says, uh, yeah, hop in, there's a station not too far. So I, I jumped in the car, I had a gas tank with the can, or maybe I bought it at the gas station. And we're getting in now, I'm trying out in this. You look like the musician type. He said, we moved on our way back to Salem from the gig in Tacoma. Oh, really? Yeah. Like this John Fahey's in your car. John Fahey is in your car. <laughs> he takes me to the station. He turns around and takes me back to the car. Right. And then while I'm pouring the gas in the car, I go, John, do you have anything for this gentleman that gave us? Oh, yeah. And he, he got a CD out and signed it to me. And he was just so excited. Sure. That was the beauty of playing with John. You never knew what you were going to Now, I said, when I got back in the car, John, I'm sorry. I've never run out of gas before because it happens to me all the time. <laughs> That's fantastic. My wife is looking at me like, this isn't Tim. Right. We ran out of gas. We forgot to gas up in Olympia. <laughs> right, right, right. You're just busy shopping okay. for records and stuff. Yeah. It was a little like the bookstore, too. Because they oh, yeah. would go through books and just, he knew, he was just looking for something. Yeah. Uh, he knew where he read everything about books. Nice. I mean, spines, you know. He knew what catalog numbers he was looking for. Got it. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. He was, uh, we'd go to his apartment. He always had a two-bedroom apartment. One for books and one for him. Wow. Yeah, just taught, covered with books and records. And That's awesome. He was always searching catalog records. One of the things that was so outstanding to me, he knew everything about trains. Now, I'm not mm. talking about, uh, you know, the two or the two major train tracks in America. Right, Southern Pacific he, or and, Union. Yeah, yeah, there you go. He knew where they intersected. He knew how to travel on a train without a ticket, without necessarily being, a, a, you know, shot, right. robbed, and all these not things. Not dealing with the bulls. He knew <laughs> which towns were the right ones to get on trains mm. that were going to some destination where you could cross over to another train and spend one day going a large right. day. He knew everything about the train system in America. That's funny. Now, how do you research that? Re traveling on trains? <laughs> that would be one way, but you know, I mean... That's fantastic. He was so knowledgeable about that. The other, of course, being literature. His mm. degrees were not in music, they were in literature. Okay. He won a Grammy when I was with him for mm -hmm. the uh, liner notes for the for a, uh, a box set that came out for, uh, for American folk music. <laughs> he wrote the liner notes and won a Grammy. Of course, that's fantastic. And he showed it to me, he called it my trophy. <laughs> I got a trophy. Yeah. And uh, I wished I would have just bought it from him and I'd still have it. Right. He was stolen out of his car because he never left his car. <laughs> yeah, you know, so my wife grew up in uh, Salem in the 90s and um, uh, early 2000s. And so she just remembered him as somebody who was like around town. 
Yeah. You know, so he'd be like here and there or at a coffee Book shop stores, or whatever. Shop, yeah. And uh, so it was just kind of funny hearing her have a different perspective on like, oh, that guy was famous? <laughs> His socks didn't match. Right? <laughs> show that you wouldn't be able to tell who someone is, you know, like similar to my wife's experience, like she hadn't heard who John Fahey was, she just knew him as the guy around town. Yeah. You know, it's like, how can you tell who these people are? <laughs> you know, you can't, because mm -hmm. uh, looks. Right. Looks, looks, looks. It's well, not about looks. So, you know, I was curious. You had the digs as one of your first professional acts. Yeah. Then you're playing with Fahey. Were there other groups that you played with? I mean, obviously, Hundred Dollar Jayhawks yeah. is one. Well, after Fahey passed away, it took me a long time to learn how to play open tunings because I didn't. I was only a rock and roller. Right. I didn't play the blues or jazz or country. I played rock and roll. But he so influenced me that I learned how to play, and he taught me. He told me what you do to create open tunings, which is what we call bar chords, and then you follow that pattern. And, right. Um, there's the painting in the corner of oh, Castle Crag. Yes, you know, I should. Which you know all about. Yes. So I just listened to what he said, but didn't think he was. He told me he was going to live his golden years in uh, Japan. He wanted to live in Japan when he got older because they treated him so well there. Right. And he loved the food there. Right. <laughs> he also loved the girls there. But anyway. I'm sure. <laughs> so it took me about five years to uh, learn how to play acoustic guitar and open tunings. So during that period, I was in other rock and roll groups uh, playing around. But then when I got to the point where I could write songs, I wrote some songs and created this group called the Bohemian Enclave, which was Julia Owens and Timmy Miles from um, the $100 Jayhawks uh, played with us for most of the time. Jeff Booth on mandolin, mm. great mandolin player. And we recorded these songs and my friend Julia Owens, who is the, was a first chair, first row violin player, we recorded at Wavelength Studio with Jason Carter, and uh, he mastered that recording and placed the instruments in a fabulous manner. And we played around art shows, small cafes, and it was just delightful. Yeah, and this is Bohemian Enclave. Yeah, as a group. excellent. And that lasted for well, you know, four or five years, or you know, and we put one CD out and. Everybody kind of went their own ways, but uh, I talked to Julia after that. She's in an orchestra, first chair, violin player. She'd tell me, it doesn't matter, Tim. Our, your music is the best music I've ever played. How flattering and yeah. wonderful, because she can play anything. <laughs> WTBC Radio is also sponsored by Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce. Locally made in Portland, Oregon, Peggy's Sauce is 100% vegan and 100% ready for you to experience a taste explosion 
you'll want again and again. Available in three flavors, Hotter Melon, Ghostberry, Five Star Gary, Carolina Reaper. That's with avocados. For more information about Peggy's Sauce, including ordering inquiries, please visit Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce, all one word, on either Facebook or Instagram. Let me say it one more time, Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce, when you need a little something with an extra kick. And at that point, then, when that was over, you know, with $100 Jayhawks made probably three CDs and one album, and successful band, really good band. Uh, Mickey Bear put everything into it. Timmy Miles, a great guitar player. Chris Super, a fabulous bass player. Jeff Graham, just listened to the record, wonderful drummer. I played keyboards with it. We played around for maybe six years. Wow. A long time. Uh, Pete's Place was our place, which mm. is now Taproot, a wonderful bar. Yeah. And back then, we'd just play. We made a record on the last day it was open, a CD. I recorded the band with like eight microphones, so it's pretty naughty, but I have it. And, sure. Uh, so our wonderful bass player was in a wheelchair because he got in a motorcycle accident. Oh, wow. So I played bass that night, and <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty notorious gig. Let's yeah. I like getting these little tidbits here. So Pete's was the place before oh. Taproot. That's what the name of the bar was. And that's, we just, the lady would have us play there anytime we wanted. Nice. Could just pack out. It was the, like, was John Henry's the place in Eugene? Pretty much. I it, mean, it if you wanted to like see that. a good rock show, that was where yeah, people were going to go. I, I mean, like, anything big would be at the Holt Center. Oh, of course. You know, of and course, then we never played the Holt Center. Bigger than that Bob would be. Bob Dylan did. Tom Waits did. For I didn't. sure. <laughs> but, so, yeah, I equate it to, like, what I... I was with John Doe once at the uh, uh, John Henry's, and it, it seemed like Pete's place wild, crazy, loud, fun. Yeah, well, and it was places that had stories that predated the 90s from when I lived there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you could tell that, like, when people would come in and they'd be like, oh, I've been playing here for decades, and you know, stuff like that. Um, uh, that's cool. So, uh, I like the notion that, as well, you know, kind of parallel to your career as a guitar salesman you're also playing in bands too because sometimes well, people are one or the other <laughs> yeah look at fred and tootie right and before the jayhawks i was in a group my group called the nettles mm. and then i recorded mickey bear at my house and then i played it for the guys and said we should be doing this and right. he joined the nettles and we became a hundred dollar jayhawks so the nettles was kind of a favorite instrumental band yeah and, and then we morphed into the Jayhawks and it just jumped us up to degree. Having this wonderful singer, you'll see when you hear the record, she's my little rock and roller. Yeah, he, he can. There's some musical heritage there. You know, you ever heard of the cowboy Bobby Bear? Mm, no. Bobby Bear's a country western singer in the 60s. Okay. And that's his grandpa, who's is Mickey's favorite person in the world, his grandma oh. and grandpa. That was his cousin. So. He comes from a family of singers, definitely. There's so many of these people who do, where it's like, just you know, because like, you know, it's one name isolated, that doesn't mean that the parents or even grandparents were also making music. Yeah. You know? Well, Bobby Bear was a, a notorious kind of cowboy, oh, 
had a big hit. I can't remember. Something about Detroit or something. Mm. Mickey would know, but he doesn't talk about that kind of stuff. <laughs> right, right, right. But all of these are. So, I mean, we've kind of hinted at this a bit, but like, um, you know, you've developed an interesting customer base uh, over the years, just in terms of people who are actually looking for guitars and whatnot. Surprisingly so. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think um, you, know, you were saying that like, Exene was one of the earliest ones, but it seems like you've had people interested the whole time through, like a, well, each generation. Yeah, but she was the first one to come in, but... Uh, you know, when you get John Doe telling all of his mates about this great store in Salem, I mean, he introduced me to Joe Strummer. Yeah. One day. How uh, crazy is that? He's brought in all sorts of people because he's like a Smokey Hormel mm. who played with John Doe and then went on to uh, to uh, the uh, Beck, played right. with all Be- Beck's great big records, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, Sean Lennon and then Tom Waits. Right. And so I got to see a lot of nice concerts because of Smokey Harmel, who I met through John Doe, who is a very big fan of mine instead of the other way around. (laughs) How funny is that, where it's like now you've kind of got a different kind of of, um, notoriety going on? (laughs) Well, here's what happened The, the store became iconic because of. People like Nirvana shopped here, and then one magazine, they named me as one of the only five guitar stores currently to come in. Wow. And people read stuff like that. But I didn't know the people. Uh, Foo Fighters, every one of them came in the store and bought a guitar, except Dave Grohl didn't buy a guitar. (laughs) The drummer bought a guitar. The sound man bought a guitar. The bass player bought a guitar. And David Grohl told me, well, I'm not into vintage guitars. (laughs) Hey, thanks for coming in again. And then... Nowadays, he's major into vintage guitars, right. but that was their first album. So anyway, anyway, uh, the iconic thing came from the ridiculous people that I met in this business. Yeah. It's been crazy. So, uh, Social Distortion were great customers of mine. Mm-hmm. Dennis Donnell bought two 58 Les Paul specials from me. Dang, not, a, not an inexpensive guitar. <laughs> no, he always owed me money. So he, he called me and said, hey, we're playing Shoreline Theater with Neil Young. You want to come up and get your money? I said, sure, Why I'll not? come down there. And, and make sure you put two at the door. You know, oh, yeah, I'll get you in. Mm-hmm. That was real fun, going to San Francisco to collect $2,000. Sure, sure. And, uh, he was a great, great customer of mine. As was Alan Woody of the Almond Brothers. Yeah. And great customers tell other people about this great store. I've never called it a great store. It's <laughs> just my place, you know. But. Right. Other people do that work for you. And then the, thanks to Mon Key for, for booking all these shows in the 90s. And you know, what are they going to go to? ABC Music? No way. Right. They, they, they don't need to be... Uh, tossed out <laughs> yeah well and again the context for the time too there were probably not that many places in salem to check out if you were on tour and playing a gig here interestingly <clears throat> austin there were three okay but there was only one me there was uh uh tom had a pretty interesting store but the other ones were just music stores in general right. that had some guitars. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe did people that worked there didn't even go to shows. 
right. I've seen all these people that did this wonderful stuff with me multiple times. Mm-hmm. Mud Honey, they were super fun. There's a picture of oh. Mark Arm there on the yeah. in the white T-shirt playing the guitar in the store. I, I bet those guys were pretty funny. Well, here's the funny. Here's the story. They came in my store on Court Street, which was my biggest store for meeting Neil Young and all these people like that. Um, Mud Honey, they're playing at night. They come in in the afternoon, and there's a record store across the street called Oasis. And uh, Mark Arm's buying this beautiful purple uh, Sunburst custom guitar. And the bass player goes over to that record store. But he runs back over, guys, you can smoke in the guitar store. All of them just dropped what they're doing and ran over to have a cigarette at Oasis <laughs> Guitar Store. I mean, record store, which was <laughs> short-lived. That's hilarious. Because of that type of stuff, you could still smoke in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk about something that's of another era. <laughs> like, yeah, that doesn't happen anywhere anymore. So through that, of course, I sold as a lot of guitars to people that lived in Salem, yeah. and I was sold. Uh, pe- older people would come in with these guitars they'd had, and uh, they're just like tremendous guitars. So I had something to do with it—the knowledge to buy the guitars, I guess. But yeah. Well, and you're these wonderful instruments that. I can't go anywhere without somebody saying, you know, I still got my first guitar I bought from you. And, you know, that's pretty flattering because sure. I didn't make the guitar, mm-hmm. but they have it. I had it two months and they've had it 15 years. Yeah. Well, and you're kind of preserving, you know, because like these things become like families in a way where like the guy who sold it to you, you know, like I'm sure he's coming back to, to check on it and whatnot. Well, you know who Typhoon are? Yeah, yeah. You should ask their mom oh yeah uh, about that oh <laughs> uh, they came in when they were 13 14 15 uh toby and Shoki. and they've been playing forever those kids well they were playing then and uh toby more of a punk rock bass player got it and i love that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh and and so they have obviously done well by Salem. Sure. Whether people know they're from Salem or not. Uh, Kyle Morton, of course, you know. Uh, uh, they were just, they were called the Mops. The Mops? <laughs> yeah. I, I have a recording of them from the early days. So I always like hearing about the first names of bands because sometimes they're they're as entertaining as the, the yeah. later names. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, uh, so you had a gap between the initial Guitar Castle run and, and this, this most recent one. Yeah. You've been about going at it for about a year now. Um, you know, so... There's a lot of factors, I'm sure, but like, what brings you out of retirement? Like, you. Oh, well, I, mean, I didn't retire. <laughs> oh, okay. I lied about that. <laughs> okay. I, uh, my whole life changed. And so, to change from what I had, um, I had to really change. Mm. So, without telling anybody, I closed my store. I called two different stores, one in Portland and one in Tacoma, 
and they busted their ass down and bought the inventory for a lot of money. And that enabled me to then close the store and get move out the rest of the stuff and you know without having a bang bang going out of business sale right. 20% off drag it know? out for a few months yeah you, you know. know I just closed it and some other things in life I closed and so um, it wasn't enough money to live on but I had enough money to decide to try to look for work I tried to use a computer. That was a joke back then. They wanted me to go to college. Right. Everybody that I contacted. It's not like you haven't done enough of that I in your life. You've got to go back again. <laughs> and then I walked over to the Boys and Girls Club thinking, well, you know, I worked with kids for 30 years. Let's give it a try. And after a while, it took a while to get that job, they called me back and they were looking for somebody to run an art and music program. Mm. Art, music is art. And I did, and I became the director in a year of uh, arts for the Boys and Girls Club, so I stayed with them for five years. And uh, I think that helped me in my art world. I think being an art director and helping children paint and people giving me great donations of paint canvas and things for kids to use businesses like the art department saying yeah you get 20% discount on anything you touch so why all these people going on it to be real negative this way but they'd go online and buy the cheapest paint they could get when we could walk down to art department 20% off we were getting the best quality paint right for, for the less money so and supporting a business locally rather than ordering it on the internet and I created a lot of partnerships with the Boys and Girls Clubs, such as the Academy of Rock, uh, mm -hmm. fabulous people, the Greens, Karen and Mark Green, doing wonderful things for kids. And we scholarshiped kids from, my, from the Boys and Girls Club to go there. And then uh, Sarah Alvarez with the Academy of Dance. She's mm. a partner, partner now. Straub Environmental Center with the wonderful Catherine Alexander. And, and the Alighton Theater with the Maduris. Everything was just fabulous. Yeah. But everywhere I'd go in this damn town, with my friend walk around and, when are you going to open up Guitar Castle, you jerk? <laughs> what happened to Guitar Castle? <laughs> When's it going to come back, you jerk? <laughs> and uh, I lived upstairs at this building, and then one day I saw a rent sign in the window, and I said to my landlord, is the apartment upstairs available? It's bigger than the one I live in. He said, no, the room, they're going to move out of here. Mm. I said, Larry, hold it for me. Give me one day. Okay. I made up my mind to quit the Boys and Girls Club and come back to this for some reason, because now it's retirement time, and here I am working. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of people in your position, you retire and you do put in more hours. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really... I, I took a job real quick after leave, closing the guitar store because mm -hmm. you, you have to live. But uh, this is a golden room. It's wonderful. It's big. Yeah. John and Exine helped me by starting by a performance here b b right before I opened up. And that show was so sweet, too, because like, I had heard this rumor, as an, again, as an outsider coming to Salem, that there's like, oh, there's an X connection to Salem. Uh -huh. And and me, as like the, the rube from a small town, I'm like, oh, you, you think you can con me into thinking these big city rock stars just hang out in our town <laughs> of Salem? <laughs> and then, you know, my friend Rick, he's like, so let's go see uh, John and Xene at the Guitar Castle. I'm like, 
What? <laughs> They're in. Te- what? How did this happen? <laughs> you heard what Xene said. Yeah, that was very flattering. <laughs> I love it. She says, uh, "We all loved him, and you all loved him too. I know." And she <laughs> said, "But if he closes the store in five more years, we're not coming back." <laughs> I thought that was great. Of her. She's witty, charming, and yeah. they're going to be in Portland on December 28th. Cool. Uh, they're on a world tour right now for their 40th anniversary of X. Yeah. They're going to land the plane in Portland and Seattle, and that'll be a, almost an entire year of touring this 40th anniversary. So, hardly any bands make it that long. I mean, like, who makes it 40 years? <laughs> the Rolling Stones. And them. <laughs> and that's it, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think they're just as good as they were. I, I'm going to. John's called me. I think I think I can squeeze a ticket, another ticket out of it. Nice. Or two. I've only gotten to see them three times now in my life because um, I missed their their earlier years, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but it was definitely something that uh, it, it's unlike a lot of rock shows because you really feel like a. a well, they're, they're golden together, yeah. singing. John and Maxine singing together is just, and they know it too. That it just they met, they tried it out. But they didn't know how good they really were until they started making records. Yeah. yeah. That's going to do it for us this week here on the program. My conversation with Timothy Knight, wandering around Salem, Oregon, and uh, eventually getting to the Guitar Castle. Uh, he is a character, and uh, you know, I was trying to decide what to do with this conversation, and I was talking with Mick Hickman of Northwest Notes, and uh, he just said, like, ah, oh, you should just send it as is. People know Tim. Like, they're, they're just going to get the full Tim. And, uh, you know, he was right, actually. Like, there's not... I mean, I, I don't know how else I wanted this conversation to go. <laughs> it just, uh, you know, it captured what Tim is like uh, in so many different ways uh, that, yeah, here it is. Basically unedited. I'll probably do another chat with him at some point, uh, asking questions to fill in some of the gaps, because he gets at so much stuff in this conversation and it's really hard to follow up with the immediate question that you want to ask when there's seven others vying for attention (laughs) so uh expect him to return to the show at some point or another i actually have another conversation recorded with him uh in his group the paintings so uh hopefully you'll get to hear that very soon The opening theme music was by Paco and Laura Jones, and our closing theme music is by the band X. Please check us out online, anywhereanywhen.wordpress.com. We've got some cool back episodes for you to listen to. And, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a hub for all things related to this show. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good place to go and visit and just get familiar with, if you know what I mean. 
And while you're getting familiar with it, why not visit the sponsors that help support this program? We're talking about Live Bar, we're talking about Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce, and we're talking about J. Jean Portraits. I mean, these are all amazing and wonderful organizations that uh, do great work, and uh, they're also considered enough to help this program. And that is something that we are very thankful for. So help them out. Help us out. Help everyone out. It's, it's the way of the future, as I understand. I think that's going to do it for us this week. What can I say? You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you. in your late 20s or I was probably 20 oh probably 20 okay yeah interesting 19 and 20 I, I, I yeah it's when when I went over to the desert because my friend said his dad was an engineer and we could get a job over there and make real money okay okay of course there's nothing to spend it on we were in the desert he didn't tell me I woke up the next day in the middle of this desert. Mm-hmm. As far as you can see, nothing. Pants, not required. <laughs> Except that his mom and dad lived in the ranch down there. Sure. Everything was gravel roads. Beautiful. Yeah, I learned so much. And I did take my bass and amp, and we played a lot of music uh, in the desert. Mm. A drummer, a bass player, just door open. No, no neighbors. Right, right. You're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Wow. It must have been kind of freeing too to like not necessarily be connected to any particular thing, but just kind of like exploring music on your own. I left home. Mm, that's how you got out there. Got it. Went out there. Didn't go back home. Uh, I mean, to live, visit, of course. But I never, I never had to go back home. Was that like a um, difficult to leave, or did, was that something that you found like, oh, I need to do this? Couldn't wait to leave. <laughs> I did it. I did it. <laughs> Some people. Really I did think it would be more like Bend or something. Oh, but got it. But it was 60 miles southeast of Bend. <laughs> so not quite as hip as, as Bend. <laughs> Bend wasn't the least like, hip back then. Right, right, right. Very square. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that might have shaped who I am. That might have helped a great deal. Instead of having the ability to go to college right out of high school. Right. I didn't have that ability. My folks didn't have money. So I took this opportunity and I came back and searched for a job that I wanted uh, later. Uh, a couple of years of drifting uh, hippie days, I guess you'd call it. Sure, sure. It was a style at the time. Very fun. 
Mm -hmm. If I tell anybody about levitating, they just laugh at me. But, you know, I experienced it more than once where uh, I was awake, awoken in the middle of the night. Completely quiet out there at night. Completely. You might hear the banging of a jackrabbit running across the, right. the property, you know, knocking over a rake or something. All sagebrush. No snakes where we were. Uh, jasmine or uh, what kind of trees were those? Right at the end of this great big juniper uh, forest, it just drops off into this desert. From juniper oh. to sagebrush. The smells, everything was great. Now, was that something that you were looking for while you were out there? Were you trying to find a spiritual connection? I was for me. Okay. Yeah, I found me in the desert. Yeah. Really, really good. Do you think before that you weren't necessarily there pursuing... There weren't any girls. <laughs> of course not. It's the desert. <laughs> but that's kind of what motivates us as those young people is that, like, sometimes we think finding me means finding a girl or finding a drug or finding yeah. whatever. That came later. Right, right. <laughs> I revisited the property two summers ago, not this summer, one before. And I came up the old dirt road, gravel road, exactly the same as it was in the 60s. Wow. And I had my friend with me, and we pulled the car over, and I showed her where I, I used to go up on the top of that ridge up there and have a snack, you know, have a beat by myself time. And, but as I'm doing, I see a guy walking across the whole property where we live. We live, me and my friend Steve, in a tool shed. Mm. Tool shed is a, house, a facility that you put your combines and stuff in. Sure. Hadn't been used in years. And then there was this other garage, the building that you would have vehicles and stuff in there. So a guy come out of it. So of course you're out there. And I'm just parked alongside the dirt road. So I wave. He waves. And I get out of the car. He stops what he's doing. And we walk over. There's an electric gate, you know, the opening. I said, hi, my name's Tim. I used to live here in the 60s, so I'm just here. Are you Tim Knight? He said, yes. He said, come on in. <laughs> went through the gate. I said, yeah, I, you know, I've heard about you. Because they bought the farm. I was years ago. Wow. And I said, yeah, we used to live in the tool shed. He said, well, come on in. He took me in the tool shed. And he said, I got some things for you. His kids had taken some stuff off the walls, which were just raw plywood walls right and there was some papers that were stuck behind notes from a friend of steve's oh wow from that period whoa his name is timmy wriston and he he showed them to me and there was a psychedelic drawing nice and i took a picture of it i was working at boys and girls club with her body and I took that picture back, and she said, God, that's my mom's, I, I, that's my mom's, that's my mom's. That's crazy. And then we, he took us over to a wall where Steve had 
John, the, the zigzag man, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very delicately, very quite nice right, on right. the wall, and I totally forgot about it. Of course, I have pictures of me standing in that wall next to an American flag playing my bass at wow. you know, 19 years old. That's fantastic. It was so nice of them, and then I said, you know, I put together an old car out in that area of theirs. I think I know what you mean. He said, yeah, I just saw parts of it. I picked up the door and there was a clear colored scorpion under there, so I dropped it and ran. This was in that old time days. Right. But I pieced together a door and some fenders when I visited later in the 70s. Okay. Or maybe even 80s. I put it together and walked away. He said, go back out there and I think it's over this way. We went there and son of a bitch, there were still some of those parts on the ground <laughs> from an old 20s car that was just totally rusted. Sure. There was a fender. I found another door and stuff like that. And we laughed so hard. It was so funny. It's interesting how, like, and, and this is how music is too, but like, these things that we do years ago leave their mark and they persist. In the desert, they don't go away. Right, right. There's nothing there that's like tearing it down or blowing it up or whatever. Someday maybe, but same as it was. Yeah, yeah. Property is several acres and the one family lives on it. The place that mom and dad live down at the gravel road that takes you to Silver Lake, it's fallen completely to the ground. There's nothing Mm. there. They were all just handmade little houses. Yeah. It's interesting how fragile a lot of that stuff is, too, because, like, it seems like it should last longer, but, like, I realize, you know, weather has its, takes its toll. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Five decades. I guess it, maybe it shouldn't be around. Who knows? <laughs> WTPC. Anywhere. Anywhere. Yours.